This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. And Roar! The dinosaurs are... We're back! A dinosaur story. <laughs> uh, this is our bonus episode for June 2020. We're going to be talking about The Rise and Fall of the Dinosaurs, A New History of Their Lost World by Steve Brusati. Uh Andrew... What makes this episode special, though? Uh, dinosaurs make it special. Dinosaurs always make it special. Who else is here? Who else is here? Oh, all the people. <laughs> all the people at home, playing along at home. Yeah. Who are they? The listeners, our Patreon donors. Yes. What are you I'm, well, you're trying to get? <laughs> I don't know the password that, that you want that's, me to say. Well, that's good. Yeah. So we. this is our, as I said, it's our bonus episode, which means that we are recording this with a live chat of our uh, supporters through Patreon. Um, find out more information on how you can join a future live show. Uh, they happen every other month. Go to patreon.com slash overduepod. Um, and yes, Allegra says in the chat, uh, if they remember correctly, I do love dinosaurs. That is true. That's why we're here. So every many kids go through a dinosaur phase i went through one i assume henry's gonna go through one one of these days i mean you if you have anything to do with it oh yeah he will um and many many of those kids grow out of that phase and craig never did yeah i don't think and i so did craig is everybody has you know the friend that they send all the niche articles <laughs> that they see about like one specific topic and craig's articles on that Craig's articles in that like milieu are pandas and dinosaurs. Yeah, pandas and dinosaurs. Re- and then I've got a few like friend specific ones. Like our friend Christina and I always send each other updates on the Boston Dynamics robots that can open doors. Like you just you Man, know do not like them. <laughs> do not like them at all, even one bit. Um, and we don't have any time to talk about pandas and whether or not our listeners who dislike pandas are wrong. Like we don't have time to talk about that today. Uh, all we're going to be talking about is dinosaurs. Um, and we will talk about favorite dinosaurs. Don't you worry. But yeah, I honestly can't remember. Like, I don't have a formulative dinosaur experience. There is footage of me from younger than I can remember, like lisping through the names of dinosaurs to my cousins. Like, I don't know mm-hmm. when dinosaurs like grabbed me, you know, they've just had a hold <laughs> so on <to> me <laughs> forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't so know. You, when, so did this you is stop already firmly established. Like, did I, I didn't stop believing in them. I just moved on to like Lego minifigs and Super Mario Brothers, <laughs> sure. and then later smooching ladies. Oh yes, well they're mutually exclusive. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. I did. Okay, here's buckle up for how much I enjoyed this book because I will. Okay. I will say that despite being someone who does really like dinosaurs 
and never really shed that skin and other metaphors. Um, I did not like take a bunch of dinosaur classes in school. I did not like, but I'm don't I don't spend time on dino forums. Like I'm, it's just you didn't you didn't let it become your profession. I'm a bit of a dino dilettante, to be perfectly honest. Like I really I a, yeah. You got other words <laughs> for me? No, I did, but then I lost it. Hold, just keep okay. going. Um, and so this book, it's written for like an adult, an adult enthusiast. I said adult, which might as well be a type of dinosaur. Adultosaurus. <laughs> um, yeah, enthusiast was. I I was trying to think if there's another word for somebody who is like not a professional but is more than an amateur, and I think it is enthusiast. But my brain is telling me there is another word I wanted. Mm, um, it's not rock. Are you like a? a a journeyman dinosaur fanatic. Sure, yes. Um, and and so this book is really, I found it very satisfying because it like built on a lot of ambient dino knowledge that I had, but actually Just rolling around in yeah, there. Yeah, but actually, like if you were reading every Scientific American article about dinosaurs that comes out literally every day, I don't read them every day, then maybe you know a lot of this stuff. Um, mm-hmm. but this like spoke to me in the, like, I closed this book. I, L- Laura came into the office and we were talking about something else. And I was like, I love this book. I can't believe I didn't go into dinosaurs. Exact quote. I, I liked this book so much. <laughs> I questioned my entire life and career path that I did not become a person who could write this book. <laughs> So it's so it's not it's not too late. I mean, people do career changes throughout their lives. It's true. Um, now Stephen is not one of those people. He is like two years older than us, and he already knows yeah. so much more about dinosaurs than you could ever hope to. That it does make you sort of despair of ever catching up. It's maybe. a real bummer that this guy is what like thirty six or something. Yes, and he has discovered over a dozen dinosaurs. Interesting uh, term that he uses a lot in the book. People may or may not be familiar with. He has described many dinosaurs is the term that he uses because often you're not like who discovered it. I don't know. Like he looks at a bunch of bones and goes, "No, that's actually a new dinosaur. It's not the dinosaur you thought it was." Um, and he, so he uses described a lot. Maybe there's a, maybe there's sure. a taxonomical difference somewhere. But Emily in the chat suggests Dino Devotee, which is fun Ooh. because you can you can say Dino Devotee <laughs> like in Jurassic Park. That's very good. That's very yeah. good. Uh, anything else that you found rather rapidly? I'm just he just is whenever. <laughs> since I became thirty something instead of twenty something. Sometimes you like you're just like plugging away at whatever it is that you're doing and then you get a little older and then you look up from your desk and you do notice other people who do seem to be doing more and better than you. Yes. Yes. Um, I know you're not a big sportsman, Andrew, but I feel that way about professional sports. I've I've made that transition in the last five or six years where all the good sports people are younger than us now. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. And they used to be like adults that were accomplishing amazing things. And now they're youths that are accomplishing amazing things. And I hate it. Yeah. I mean, it, it, that happens to you all through your life, though. Like Doug from the show Doug is in sixth grade. And I remember being younger than Doug and then Doug's age and then older than Doug. 
from the show Doug. Oh, <laughs> not from Disney's Doug. F that show. No, not no, no, not that one. That's not canon. Uh, the little bit I have on Mr. Brasati, he was, as we said, born in 1984. He's from Illinois, which factors into his story in the book. Uh, he went to U Chicago, University of Bristol, Columbia. He teaches and works in Edinburgh. His books include the aptly titled book Dinosaurs. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> dinosaur paleobiology, and he also worked on a book that was a tie-in, among others, to the 2013 uh, film Walking with Dinosaurs, which was also based on a BBC show, which also was turned into an arena show that I definitely saw. Mm-hmm. Uh, where a bunch I, of... yeah, you didn't you and your sister went to see this like three years ago? <laughs> no, this was like seven years ago, but I was still oh, definitely the only like twenty something dude there <laughs> with my mom and sister to see a dinosaur show. <laughs> it was great. Um, and he is your mom still thinks you're a little baby. Well, it's I okay. am. I'm her little baby. It's fine. Yeah. Um, and. He was reported to be a consultant on the forthcoming Jurassic World Dominion due out sometime next year. Who knows? I can't really with the new Jurassic Worlds. I haven't. I mean, I watched the first one and thought it was stupid. I just, I don't know what a scientific consultant on those movies is supposed to be doing right now because they have moved. I mean, I haven't. They've moved pretty far from regular dinosaurs. They're just kind of slapping together new or bigger more bloodthirsty dinosaurs for some reason yeah they make they made that dinosaur the first one in the new trilogy movies that dinosaur had cloaking technology and like where else do you go from there like that dinosaur could blend into the woods Mm -hmm. stupid i watched that on a plane and i hated it anyway That's a whole genre. Like I've, I saw life of like half of Life of Pi. Oh sure, muted on a plane. I was like, this isn't so good. That, you like that book though? Yeah, it's a good book. Yeah. Um, episode. Um, he studied with Paul Sereno, who he talks about a lot in the book. Who was a very famous Chicago dinosaurman uh, with a number of discoveries. Who was one of People Magazine's fifty most beautiful people in nineteen ninety seven. His Wikipedia p- page does feature a picture of him wearing a denim top and denim jeans. Yeah, which is uh, a look that Michael, you can do if you want. Michael Benton, who's a cool Scottish paleontologist, and plenty of other folks that he names in the book, and as we said, has discovered or described more than a dozen species, uh, including a new species of the Carcharodontosaurus, which is like a sort of tyrannosaur but of a different lineage. Um, before we get into the book, Andrew, what's your favorite dinosaur? I was thinking about this, and I gotta go with like a plesiosaur or something, right? Like I, I, I like the aquatic dinosaur. Interesting, interesting. Yeah. Why? Because it you one of your topics is like size and how dinos did they get so big? Yeah. Um, and it makes more sense for a water thing to be big because we still have big water things. Sure. Now that's true. That's true. Mm-hmm. Did you know that whales used to be land animals that went into the water? I don't like the what what chased them down into the depths. <laughs> I don't Was it know. dinosaurs? I don't know. I maybe it's possible, but there's <laughs> okay. no such dinosaur that made that change. Think about that. Because well, they all died. No, even in the time of the dinosaurs, no dinosaur was like, hey, land rules, but actually let me go into the water. 
Okay. Is just a thing that they never did. Um, and what's your least favorite dinosaur? Do you have one? At those little like chicken looking ones, what are those called? <laughs> Which ones? There's a bunch the, of them. Just the little ones. You just don't, I don't know, like, like in Jurassic Park Two: Lost World. The like compies, those guys. yes, the compasaurs. The yeah, uh, like no thanks. Yeah, those guys stink. Um, if you want, if you want to be a dinosaur, be big. Otherwise, be a chicken. That's my. <laughs> that's how I think. So my yes, the compasagnathus. Thank you, Spin. Excuse me. Um, the my least favorite dinosaur. Sort of a cheat answer because I don't really dislike any dinosaur, but I don't like <laughs> Lisa in the chat guest Microraptor. I don't like the Microraptor. Andrew, the Microraptor has four wings. Think that about, seems like too many. It's a tiny little dinosaur bird because birds are dinosaurs, and it has four wings that it could use to fly. Uh that's a mess. That's too many wings. Now, did it need all four, or it, was it like main wings and then auxiliary wings? It seems like they used Backup all four, wings. but it may have like used two for lift and four for gliding. I see. But some some paleontologists have speculated it used all four for lift, which is kind of wild to me. My favorite dinosaur is the Parasaurolophus which I have seen the holotype of uh, in Chicago and the Field Museum holotype is the specimen that you use to determine whether or not other fossils belong to that species. Like it's the most complete skeleton of a particular species of dinosaur. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Like how they have like a gold stick or whatever. That's that is what a meter is. You know, like a museum somewhere, they have like the yes. reference meter. Yes, this is sure. the reference dinosaur yes. for that particular type of dinosaur. Truth. Um, when you said hollow, I was I imagined like a, you know, like a Tupac hologram, <laughs> but a dinosaur. Yes. Well, uh, I have him come on stage, Coachella, and just roar at everybody. Uh, and so I, I, I was reminded. I love the Parasaurolophus. They're like a big hadrosaur. They're a, a bipedal mostly. Though they can move on all fours, like hadrosaur kind of thing where they they eat a lot of, you know, they're herbivores and they have this big crest on the back of their head, like a big tube coming out of the back Mm -hmm. of their head. What was that for? Um, Well, probably sex, like probably not, like probably (laughs) to attract mates. (laughs) Uh, but also they, they dinosaurs are nasty. They were probably like acoustic, like they could make cool noises with them. I I was on YouTube last night listening to simulated Parasaurolophus sounds. Is this like is this an and situation? They were good for sex and cool noises, or yeah. an or situation? They were good for sex or cool noises. Uh, probably both at the same time. Okay. Um, and I was reminded of a tweet from 2018 that was going around one of those meme tweets that was, your Halloween costume is sexy plus your biggest fear. And mine was, sexy, what if I met a dinosaur and it didn't like me? And then sure. And then Christina asked me what kind of dinosaur it was. And I said, I want to know a Parasaurolophus. It would shake my hand, let me touch its head crest. I'd let it ruffle my hair. And as we parted, it would thank me for laughing at the right spots during the stories it told. <laughs> I love these beautiful creatures so much. Isn't that the one that Susanna's friend like drew a picture of? Yes. For you. Let me, see, yeah. let me see if I can reach it to show the audience at home. Fill the gap. Sure. Um so 
what I don't know about dinosaurs could fill a book that's probably the length, roughly, of uh, the rise and fall of the dinosaurs. Can the you, untold story can of you the see world. this art? It's a little reflecty, but you, but know, can, you see can see it. this art of me hanging out with this beautiful Parasaurolophus. Yeah, it's my favorite. It's above my desk. I look at it every day. So let's talk about, I mean, we could just talk about dinosaurs, but we are talking about dinosaurs by way of a specific book. Yeah. Um, I have brought some like middling Goodreads reviews because we are, you know, we're on the record as yes. enjoying those because they really, they're real head scratchers. They really make us think. Um, so a lot of praise for the content of the book and mm-hmm. how cool dinosaurs are, <laughs> but some detractors who did not like the style of the writing or like personality. So I guess I want to start <laughs> with what the book is like to read. Yeah, sure. Um, so uh, problem is, this is from Emily on Goodreads. Problem is, I just couldn't stand Broussard's writing. He obviously knows his stuff about dinosaurs, but I thought he made the potentially fascinating information very dry. And that's just when he's sticking to the subject. It gets far worse when he goes on long tangents about himself, name dropping the people he's met and worked with, unless it's a female paleontologist, in which case, who? You mean, what's his name's wife? <laughs> Okay, so that that addresses a bunch of things. Do you have another one, or else I'll dive right in? Just the uh, the good part of the book is this is from another Emily, another different Emily. A lot of, I bet there are a lot of Emilies on Goodreads. If I'm being honest, uh, the good part <laughs> a group of, of the Emilies book is, is called a Goodreads. I don't know. <laughs> The good part of the book is the clear and vivid writing about dinosaurs. I particularly liked learning new things about the dinosaur-like creatures that lived among them but happened to fall outside the classification and reasons why dinosaurs could evolve to be absolutely gigantic or fly. Uh, And then I'm going to elide some. And then the bad part is the writing about the author's personal experiences as he grew from an annoying, precocious teen, which he freely admits he was, into a working paleontologist. Frankly, he comes off as more than a little self-satisfied, a sighting of the Dricus Brillianticus, if you will. Oh, that's funny. Okay. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, just there's the starting point. Let's talk about this book. Yeah, so in the beginning of the acknowledgement section, I, I think those observations, they they are they are I can't say that they are untrue about the book. Like they describe things that do occur in the book, and I, I have specific thoughts about the weaknesses pointed out, but let me just share this first paragraph from the acknowledgement section because I think it gets to what he's trying to do, whether or not it always succeeds. My contribution to the field of dinosaur research has been relatively recent and relatively small. Like all scientists, I stand on the shoulders of those who came before me, and I'm helped up by those who work alongside me. I hope this book conveys how exciting things are right now in the field of paleontology and how everything we've learned about dinosaurs over the last few decades stems from a communal effort, the work of a diverse group of wonderful people all over the world, men and women, from field volunteers and amateurs to students and professors. He then goes on to get uh, like sp- more specific when he's like, oh, he's, here are some people that I do need to uh, to mention and talk about, um, but it does... There is two things can be true. He is trying his best to give credit where credit's due throughout the book, which Mm -hmm. the best way that he can relate that is often to go on like a two-page anecdote about uh, someone he followed through the foothills of a different of one of the 20 countries that he talks about in this book um, or parts of North America uh, in the United States 
And he gives a lot of credit to the people that either like emailed him and were like, hey, you have a little bit of expertise. Can you help me identify this thing? And and I don't think that comes off as self-congratulatory or self-satisfied. Um, but he does like spend a little bit of time sometimes just being like, here's this guy and he has like a funny sense of humor and a weird beard and he's really good at these types of bones or <laughs> like, and I think he does not push back probably as he could uh against the like decades long uh like gender bias within science and science research which i know a lot of people have written about and and are writing about more with increasing evidence and and ways to correct that kind of behavior and then also in addition to science every other field that exists well every uh, yes across all of civilization no no you're right excuse me I, <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah um i i'm i'm thinking of like the article that i think ed yang wrote about for the atlantic about making sure that he was as unbiased as possible or correcting for for bias in uh scientific research fields by like speaking to more women who are experts on topics like no he went back through all of his writing and was like oh i only cited like two women ever like that's a problem yeah Um, yeah that's a big thing that i i mean i definitely didn't do it early in my career as a journalist but as i started as as i was doing more like interview-based pieces and research-based pieces like source diversity is important as well as you know actual like representation in the field of journalism yes and so i will say that there are a number of times where he does uh call out by name and and, in a good way i mean like the work of women paleontologists and paleobotanists and things like that um it is it seems to have been his lived experience that he has gone on more fossil hunts and actual digs with men his age and older uh, many of whom are the mentors that he is excited to tell you that he is working with and he doesn't seem to be sharing those stories in a like look at this cool thing i did it seems more to be about look at all of the work that's come before me a 30 something paleontologist he's trying to like say that his work is additive rather than definitive sure um i mean i guess that would be at least that's that's how how i read it that's how i read it. sure 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 that's the case in a lot of fields is like if you if you craig were becoming a dinosaur guy I don't know when they started discovering dinosaurs, but like back whenever they started doing that. The ones that we talk about in this book are like the early 1800s. There's like okay. one sentence. I wish he does more. I wish he did more of this in the book. I'm sorry. I'm, to, I'm going to forget this. And No, it's okay. My The awesome thing I'm going to say is probably still going to be fine. Okay, cool. Um, <laughs> he, he talks a lot about the early 1800s. He does have one or two sentences throughout the book that acknowledge indigenous people both specifically in north america and in other parts of the world that like probably discovered dinosaur bones but they did not enter into like you know western academia in the same way um and i do wish that the book left a little room to talk about the inherent tensions of digging up a bunch of land around the world Um, yeah right but he just doesn't create space for that anyway what were you saying yeah i mean that's a thing in in all fields of archaeology especially if you're if you're talking about antiquity where like people are often still living in those places (laughs) just like on top of all the stuff um but yeah no you mentioned that uh, he mentions this guy who's like an expert in this kind of bone and it made me think 
you know, if you started being a dinosaur expert in like the 1830s or whatever, you could probably just be a guy who knew everything there was to know about every dinosaur. And if you had, if you did it now, what if you became known for some like stupid type of like toe bone or something? And that's all <laughs> anybody wanted to come to you and talk about yes. is like dinosaur toe bones. Yeah. It feels like you get pigeonholed is what I'm saying. Yeah. And pigeons are a type of dinosaur. So that's kind of weird, huh? Yeah, Think about true, that. It's true. It's true. Um, Nora in the chat gave a shout out to Prehistoric Road Trip, which is a great new show that just started on PBS, hosted by an Emily. Actually, I watched most of the first episode before we recorded this podcast. Um, and speaking to that, like, what can you make? What kind of expertise can you make yourself known for? Um, Emily, who's a woman who works with the Field Museum in Chicago and has a big YouTube channel and stuff like that was talking to a woman in South Dakota, I think, who's trying to learn about how soil affects fossilization. So she put a bunch of cages over roadkill in some fields along a highway and is measuring pH tests like in the soil while the maggots eat the bones. And she's like, not a lot of people are doing this. <laughs> this rules. Like what an amazing, huh. like, okay, yeah, carve why out are, your- why aren't more people doing this? <laughs> Sounds fascinating. And, and okay, and so Nora says that the second episode of that show. So check out Prehistoric Road Trip because apparently it also talks about dinosaur fossils on native land, um, which cool, this book cool. does not. Anyway, um, so yeah, the the there is a kind of like I'm a hotshot dinosaur man, like rolling around the world. He he at once says like, oh, I was working for a hotshot dinosaur man who let me describe this wonderful dinosaur. And that's how I kind of got a little famous in my 30s. And then he spends a lot of time like telling stories about like, oh, here's this guy who found a cool dinosaur. So I called him up and asked to go look at it. Or someone called me up and said, hey, can you help me look at this thing? So a lot of the a lot of what he is doing when he's doing this name dropping, I at least my initial read was that he was trying to share credit and point to interesting people along the way. He does mention some of the older people, like older parts of dinosaur fossil hunting history, um, like the Bone Wars, for example, of the late 1800s. Excuse Have me. You, see, also, Andrew, like I'm excited to tell you about some of this stuff because I know you are not a dinosaur dilettante or a dino devotee. Not a dino, yeah. So, like the Bone Wars were a thing that happened in like the late 1800s. Where a dude from Philly heard more about the Bone Wars. A dude from Philly and a dude from Yale uh, went to war over like the Morrison Formation, which is a big part in the you know Upper Midwest or, or West. Um, that's like thirteen states worth of uh, of land, and they had a lot of discoveries. A lot of dinosaurs that we know about today came out of the Bone Wars, but they were mostly doing it for like celebrity and profit. And so a lot of the work was kind of shoddy and it wasn't really protecting the land in any sort of way. And for decades, they were still going back and like trying to sift through, no pun intended, all of the work that they had done. Contrast that with um, this guy. What is Barnum's last? There's a guy. Bones? Uh, Barnum Brown. Um, who was the guy who discovered the T-Rex. He gets a, a decent chunk in this book as well, and he discovered the T-Rex, I think, in 1902. He was sent there by a virulent racist who was running the New York American History Museum, like, oh, excuse me, American Museum of Natural History, um, and props to Broussard, who, like, 
this the guy who was running the museum was like really into evolution and darwin and stuff and he acknowledges how that type of science has been you know weaponized by racists throughout history and you know yeah fans of eugenics and things like that mm-hmm. um but barnum brown is this like colorful like eccentric character who wears fur coats to the bone digs and like he becomes famous for discovering the t-rex and he starts doing radio shows apparently he consulted on the dinosaurs for fantasia you know because that's a thing i guess you would do is like help (laughs) walt disney draw the dinosaurs for fantasia um and he discovered a whole bunch of dinosaurs but he is really known for t-rex like that's the thing and so to your earlier point about like people today being like i'm the expert on toes uh or like i guess there are there are going to be there's a generation of folks now who are a growing group of experts on dinosaurs having feathers like that's a like 90s and on thing um yeah that's we'll have to talk about that Whenever you're ready to. I mean, I right now I want to pitch. There's already a show called Bones, which people in the chat are bringing up. Um, I've never heard of it. Yeah. But I would watch another, a different show called Bones that was about like a, an eccentric, flamboyant archaeologist who was solving like dinosaur bone crimes or fighting yes. bone wars. Just uh-huh. maybe like a mini series. All right. Or something dedicated if there's anything like, like to that. a fictionalized account of his life. Yeah, I would watch that also. Um, so let me, let me just lay out, like, we haven't really done a, like a bird's eye or dinosaur's eye view of what the book (laughs) is doing. (laughs) And it's like divided into roughly nine chapters. There's a prologue and an epilogue. Um, and he goes chronologically through prehistoric history and the life cycle of the dinosaurs. And so that, uh, interspersed with the history of paleontology and our discovery of the dinosaurs interspersed with him hotshot dude who discovers new dinosaurs <laughs> like <laughs> they're they're like three levels to the story he's telling over time um and the one that goes most linearly is hey let's start before there were dinosaurs and let's go through until there were no more dinosaurs mm-hmm. um so one of the things that like I don't know a lot about um, is the Permian age, which is the age before the dinosaurs. Um, Because what's to, what's to know? Like there weren't, there weren't alive dinosaurs and there weren't dead dinosaurs to study. Uh There were just no dinosaurs. So like, what's the point even? Well, there was, there was all sorts of stuff there though. There were other creatures. Dinosaurs though, unless they were cooler than dinosaurs, in which case, why are we talking about dinosaurs? Why aren't we talking about the cooler (laughs) pre-dinosaur animals? Sure. Well, and so one of the things that this book does a lot of is saying like for the first few eras of dinosaur history and all throughout dinosaur history, there are non-dinosaurs. There are mammals. There are, you know, Crocodiles, because crocodiles are related to dinosaurs, but it's a whole thing called archosaurs. Blah 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 blah. Um, in the Permian age, there the Earth was covered in like giant lizards and amphibians, like pariosaurs and gorgonopsians, and things that some of which would go on to stick around, but a lot of which died out in this like the one of the biggest mass extinction events that the Earth has experienced. Where all of the volcano, all of the volcanoes on Earth went off at once, essentially. Oh <laughs> and no! Like, 
and like kicked us out of the Permian Age into the Triassic Age. And there's a story in the book about him going to Poland to look at these tracks of this thing called Prorotodactylus, which is a dinosaur-like animal. And the big evolutionary step here, Andrew, is that you know how salamanders or geckos or whatever like run with their feet to the side of their body? Like, yeah, who, who doesn't know that? You, well, yeah, you do know that because you're a smart boy. I do. Yeah, I'm so smart. Um, the the thing that they start seeing in the fossil record after this big extinction event is a move towards more animals or at least additional animals whose legs are under their body, which is most of the like post dinosaurs and on animals. What's the, I mean, why? What's the reason why those animals would have had an evolutionary advantage? It's unclear. And so one of the bigger themes of this book, I, I there are like two reasons that I think, um, but I want to say the big theme thing first, is that he is pretty upfront about like, here's some stuff we know. Here's some stuff we thought we didn't know, but we figured it out. And here's some stuff we still don't know. And... That is a th- a thing that I like about science, even though I don't engage with the practice of like scientific study very often, is sure. that it, it is it forces you to engage with a level of uncertainty that I think, you know, when I mentioned Ed Young earlier and a bunch of people in the chat were like, Ed Young, like he's one of the best writers on the pandemic right now because he he communicates what we do and don't know very effectively. Um, and and speaks to a lot of people who are able to speak to that as well. Yeah, right, yeah. Um, but so I think the evolutionary advantages in this thing are like, so the world was on fire, um, and there's certainly some benefits to like getting your body away from the ground, um, perhaps because you're running away from hazards. You, it may also be you can move faster uh, with your legs underneath you, that's just a fact mm-hmm. of physics. Um, so you can uh, perhaps pursue prey better or elude predators better um, or get to resources you know, more efficiently. Um, so then following the Permian extinction, we have these things called archosaurs, which are okay. like pre-dinos. Um, and there's two paths that are the crocodile line archosaurs and the bird line archosaurs. And both of those basically become dinosaurs. We have crocodiles today. We have birds today. And most of the dinosaurs that are discussed in this book are on the bird line of archosaurs. Okay. Um, so part of this book is is spent talking about these pre-dinos. Sometimes he calls them archosaurs. Sometimes he calls them dinosaur morphs or dinosauromorphs. <laughs> Which I think is mostly my favorite book series. (laughs) Mostly him just trying to like talk about what is and is not there. Um, I know that sword is just like lizard, right? I think so. um, But I don't like calling non-dinosaur things some kind of sore. You know? Yeah, it is confusing. It It is very put on airs a little bit. (laughs) Yeah, I'm a dinosaur. (laughs) Don't worry about it. It's Um, fine. Another thing he talks about a lot throughout the book that I certainly had not given a lot of thought to is like climate and not just like volcanoes erupting, but just the way that the climate of Pangea would have been different from the climate that we have today in any major way. Um, Mm -hmm. 
So he when he talks, I think it's the second chapter is called Dinosaurs Rise Up. And he's talking about where on Pangaea the dinosaurs were able to live, where the other animals were living. He's talking about how the uninterrupted ocean actually prevented any ice caps from forming, which meant the Earth was just way hotter back then, uh, more arid zones, all that stuff. Um, And that's a recurring theme. He will regularly... I don't know... He never really stops to explain how we know this, and I don't really know how we know millions of year old meteorology but somebody figured it out yeah i mean probably just (laughs) what like the fossil record and like sediment and and computer models maybe probably all yeah i think that between those three sure um one of the things i did like a lot about his writing is whenever he wants to get into describing how big a dinosaur was or what it was like uh, he uses really good reference points. So um, this isn't even a dinosaur. I think this is one of the like primitive almost dinosaurs called Metaposaurus. And he's like it a big... evolves from Caterpisaurus. Yeah. He's talking... It's like a giant salamander the, sm- the, the size of a small car. And he says, its head was the size of a coffee table and its jaws were studded with hundreds of piercing teeth. Its big, broad, almost flat upper and lower jaws were hinged together at the back and could snap shut like a toilet seat to gobble up whatever it wanted. And he just uses good, like, I know how big a toilet seat is. I know how big a coffee table is. (laughs) When he's talking about the T-Rex later, he's like, oh yeah, the T-Rex had teeth the size of, he had like big pointed teeth that were like big giant bananas (laughs) he's like and the eyes were the size of a grapefruit and the nostril the ears were the size of a bottle cap and he's just like all of really good size reference points well i I appreciate the the two groups of references that you've given me so far have been like roughly themed like yes uh uh-huh this Mm -hmm. this is like fruit and food items the one before was like furniture, yes, and like household things, yes, like coffee tables and toilet seats. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that's it's good. It's evocative. I like it. Um, so one of the big like known unknowns that he talks about is why dinosaurs and not other things, because the fossil record supports that there were a lot of other things, and like why did dinosaurs take over the earth the way they did? He mm-hmm. he does note that I mean they're big and scary, but they weren't always big and scary. And so the, there's a big portion of this book where they're the underdogs. They're little guys running around, and they can't hang out. Like only the meat eaters could move into the desert. There weren't enough plants for the herbivores, all that kind of stuff. And there are these other like big crocodiles that are more morphologically divor- diverse than the dinosaurs. Uh, and we know all this from the fossil record. He spends multiple times explaining how he developed cool spreadsheets to show you how different bones are. And maybe that's where people find the book a little dry. I found it pretty cool when he's just like, let me take a page to tell you this about this neat spreadsheet that I build and all, and all the zeros and ones that I put into it. Well, and you're, you're probably in dramatic suspense too it's like just get to the dinosaurs when are we going to get to the dinosaurs <laughs> true I can't wait to get to the dinosaurs uh so we get to the dinosaurs when pangea splits there's magma and chaos that was really sad i thought they were going to be able to make it work but well you know they might go on sometimes a reunion just, tour sometimes sometimes you just drift apart <laughs> <laughs> is pangea like a cele- like benifer like it must be some kind of yeah like celebrity couple <laughs> name Brangelina like Panos and Jennifer 
<laughs> you idiot. Um, so Pangea splits up, and there's magma and chaos and runaway global warming, and for whatever reason, all of the non-dinosaurs kick the bucket. And this is one of the known unknowns that he talks about. Um, known unknowns in that we know what happens, but we don't know why. Correct. Yes. Okay. Um, he does basically be like, maybe it was just luck. Like maybe all of the larger creatures were never going to survive this extinction. And because of the way evolution was playing out, most of the dinosaurs were small and scrappy and able to hang through this terrible period of time. Um, and some of the crocodiles and stuff stick around. Obviously, we still have crocodiles today, but dinosaurs made it. Here we go. Um, so for a period of time, he talks about now we're in the Jurassic era, and he's talking about the sauropods. He's talking about your big, your your brachiosaurs, your diplodocuses, your bron- the golden age of dinosaurs. <sighs> we're getting there, but the yeah. the I mean, he would argue the Cretaceous is the golden age, but that's also the heyday of the dinosaurs because that's when they died. So, like you know, tomato, tomato, Jurassic. Yeah, Cretaceous. I, I don't think you can include <laughs> the the end of the story as part of the golden age, but maybe it's just maybe it's all gold, baby, it- and it just ends really abruptly before. <laughs> Better to burn out than fade away. Stay gold, Donald boy. Um, And so he tells a cool story about how he went to Scotland with a dude named Dougald and they drank a bunch of beer and then found (laughs) some giant dino footprints in the sand. And he's like, oh, wow, there were sauropods in Scotland. Um, And if you don't remember, Andrew, sauropods also include the Bronto slash Apatosaurs. Um, which are unfortunately, I think maybe they're two dinosaurs now, even though I really think there should probably just be one. Uh-oh. I don't really want to talk about it right now, but, you know, the deal. Um, and he, when, I think one of the questions you said I mentioned earlier, Andrew, is like, how'd they get so big? Like, how did just dinos get so big because they big, right? Mm-hmm. Why do you <laughs> yeah. think, why do you think they're big? Why do I think they're big? Yeah. I mean, did they just not have a lot of natural predators, so they just got real big? Because all that other stuff died out? There's big... I guess they were predators to themselves sometimes. (laughs) Dinosaurs were, Mm. yeah. So he, he talks about, like, specifically talking about sauropods, these big long necks. You know, remember, Land Before Time, the long necks, Yes, right, 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 right. And he is talking about how we know um, from computer modeling and the way that we study bones, uh, like how big they probably were. And he, he presents a couple of different options for how they got so big, though. Um, a lot of food. Long necks, like giraffes, can get access to stuff that other animals couldn't get. Like plants just keep growing taller and taller so that they can... Uh, you know, not get eaten, and the dinosaurs can follow suit. Cool, 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 cool. Mm-hmm. Um, it also means that if you have this big long neck, you don't have to move around as much to eat the entire tree. Like you could just sit there for a day and eat up and down the entire tree, which is very <laughs> energy like, efficient. I like the thought of some long necks, like looking around at the other long necks, and like, oh, they're they're moving to eat like they're moving all around this tree to eat suckers I'm suckers yeah i'm gonna outlast them evolutionarily speaking uh you grow really fast so that you so that you don't die young um they look at the Same. at the boats and the, you know there was there was he mentions this theory that like dinosaurs got so big just because they lived really long like they just kept growing 
Um, but actually, if you look at their bones, you can look at them sort of like tree rings, which I didn't really know why trees had rings. I just knew that they made, they were a way to count how old a tree was. Uh-huh. Do you know why trees have rings? I mean, not as such, no, but I would guess that it just has it has something to do with growing in distinct, like, stages yes. rather than continuously like like and and maybe it's related to to the seasons or something like they just there is a season for hibernating and a season for growing you are exactly correct bing bang boom look at me i'm so smart i know lots about science it turns out there are seasons where resources are more plentiful and seasons where they are not so you can look at bones or tree rings and say like oh it's growing at a faster rate because there's more nutrients or whatever and then it slows yeah. down and I think I, I think now that you're saying that, I seem to recall that that is a way that we can, not as far back as like Pangaea times, but that that's how we know a little bit about the weather. Oh, sure, over, yes. You, over the last few hundred years, is you can look at tree rings and like their relative uh, width and divine some things about like how rainy it was that sure. year or whatever. Sure. Um. They so they would grow really fast. Um, so they wouldn't become prey. So like, you know, the big sauropods got to their sizes by about 30 or 40 years. Um, same. Um, they, <laughs> uh, they were very efficient breathers. All the dinosaurs have bird lungs, Andrew. And I didn't know that birds have like specific cool lungs. They get oxygen on the inhale and the exhale. I guess you would need more if you're going to spend a lot of time at higher altitudes. Yes. Right? It also hmm. allows you, you end up having these air sacs in your body that store the oxygen on the way in and send it back across the lung on the way out, which is more energy efficient. It also allows your bones to get lighter so that your sturdy skeleton, because you're a diplodocus, you need your big skeleton, your bones leave room for the air sacs so your bones start to hollow out but still stay strong like a girder or, or like a like a frame when you're building a construction site and you don't use like columns of cement, you use those like rebar. Re, like how like a re, well, when it's that, like a bunch of triangles. That's to like reinforce concrete. What? When it's mm-hmm. like a bunch of triangles that are all like stacked up on top of each. I don't know, man. Whatever, what man. Like a, I don't know. Um, <laughs> and then also the air sacs allow them to like shed body heat, which is really important, like an air conditioning Whoa. system. Did you ever think? Yeah. That humans invented tools and then we started to rest on our laurels a little bit like we could have i feel like we could have evolved some of these features before you know yeah <laughs> like why did we stop before we got like cool air sacs i know or like super lungs or whatever <laughs> like it's great to have hammers and pulleys and levers and stuff but if we'd had to struggle a little bit more maybe we would have evolved some cooler stuff yes uh emily and marion yeah i'm i am thinking of like trestle or or certain types of scaffolding that's true and yes we have not physically evolved significantly in a while then again we've only been here for a few thousand years in the way that we know each other now like it is weird to and i have not really like digested how much time passes in this book like everything is on the order of dozens of millions of years when he's talking yeah, it's so many years i can't really handle that amount of deep time um 
so then we move into like the continents are starting to split apart. So so he does this kind of thing where he breaks down a specific dinosaur a couple of times at specific points in history. Uh, I want to make sure we get through as much of the book as possible. Um, he moves on to talking about uh, kind of the convenience of Jurassic fossils being we have a lot from this era. And there's that's an interesting part of like paleontology and I guess other fields of science where like we have a lot of this data to study because there were a lot of dinosaurs alive at this time. A lot of them had like waterfront properties, so they would like die in a river <laughs> and then we would have sediment fall on them and then we'd have the fossils. And a lot of those places are currently exposed to available archaeological digs like you you don't have to dig up a mall to get to dinosaur bones sure as often as you might have to get to other stuff you know um so like per where we are in human development we just have access to a lot of the jurassic record which means we have a lot of information on those dinosaurs it's possible that there's more info down there but we just can't get to it um i do Want to just give a quick shout out to the Allosaurus, which is I learned something new about the Allosaurus in this book. He's That's a, always fun. He, you don't get to do that every day. No, he's like a pre-T-Rex predator, apex predator in some of his communities. Um, calls him the butcher of the Jurassic. He was Whoa. able to open his jaw obscenely wide and he had really razor sharp teeth, but he wouldn't like... He wouldn't like... He would always hunt dinosaurs that were kind of a little bit bigger than him, even though he was pretty big. And instead of really biting them, his skull was sturdy enough that he could just open his mouth and slam his teeth into you and then just, like, scrape you with his teeth. Like, just, like, headbutt you with his teeth, with his open freaking mouth, and then you're dead. No thanks. Yeah. Allosaurus, I'm good. Allosaurus rule. <laughs> no. Um. And then we kind of want to be on the receiving end of an allosaurus, no, I don't think. that's true. Uh, then we move into the Cretaceous period. We start to get the, orna- the Ornithiscans, Thiscans, which is a type of dinosaur I've never had to say out loud, but that really is that. all of the herbivores like your Stegosauruses, your Ankylosauruses, your Triceratops, things like that, as well as some of the duck-billed Hadrosaurs and things like that. Um, and then... Like any good dino book should, he does spend a whole chapter on the T-Rex, Andrew, um, mm-hmm. which I alluded to earlier. He like talks about the sick teeth and uh, the way that they could puncture bones. He basically debunks a bunch of like T-Rex was like maybe ate some dead animals, but he was not a, like a scavenger. Um, apparently, there's evidence that T-Rexes lived in packs, which is not a thing I knew before. Um, Jurassic Park lied when they said they couldn't see movement, um, stuff like that. Uh, think about this, Andrew. T-Rex could crush your bone with his tooth with a single tooth has the force of an entire alligator bite. And alligators have like the, the, the hardest bite on earth, like per square inch. A single tooth. Yeah. Where is the like the force coming from? Is it coming from like sick the, the... neck muscles? Oof. Okay. And the skull. So it's like getting bit by like twenty alligators. Yeah. <laughs> like it's like he's got a mouthful of alligators that are just like ramming through your bones, 
And he's one of the few predators that we have in the record that like actually wound up chewing on a bunch of bones because they would just mm-hmm. break them as soon as just puncture you with his teeth. Many people in the chat are pointing out the thing. So Tyrannosaurus, he's very scary and iconic, but he does have those dumb little arms. Okay, well, let's talk about Nora. Nora points out that they are about the same size as human arms. Uh huh. Which I don't know to scale what that would like if if humans had like I don't know what kind of arms those would be for us like dog arms. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's fair. <laughs> um, the book cites a one of the like probably half dozen uh, women researchers that he cites in the book compared to the several dozen dudes he grabbed beers with. Um, did do like a study on T-Rex arms and found that they actually had like really sick shoulder muscles that would allow them to extend their tiny arms in a useful way to hold down prey while they were biting them. So like this support, this is all part of the like T-Rex did not eat a bunch of dead crap. Like it was killing things actively and it was probably holding it down like while it was doing so. Are you sure the Tyrannosaurus didn't write this though? To like, just it's a known unknown. To, cur- to write this propaganda <laughs> about how the tiny arms actually are really useful and shut up about them, please. That's very possible. The T Rex would like you to stop talking about its arms and start talking about its sick brain. They've done CT scans on what on like the T Rex like brain cavity, and they estimate based on the size of what was the likely brain and the size of the dinosaur that it had the ratio that chimps have which is like a rough you know by zoological estimate for like intelligence um smarter than a dog probably topped out at a chimp the smartest t-rex did okay think about that think about a thing that's like 45 (laughs) feet long that is, is like as smart as a freaking not even a monkey a chimp Almost as smart mm-hmm. as Coco, the one that could sign the gorilla. <laughs> Probably smarter. <laughs> I am thinking more about something that is like the size of a school bus, but as smart as a dog. That is, That's I'm also more terrifying. worried about that one. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then he, he does talk about just in general, um, we know a lot about T-Rex because it became this celebrity dinosaur there's a lot of them in the breakout dinosaur. it was and it, and there's a lot of them in north america they did not actually live as there there were relatives on other continents there are similar di- tyrannosaurs in china but there are no tyrannosaurs in like the southern hemisphere for example or certainly not in south america um, stupid hemisphere i know it's very it's, and it's weird it's probably you know various land bridges and things that did or did not exist at the time um and the the late cretaceous which is when the t-rex was really in charge uh dinosaurs are pretty well separated by the continents as we mostly understand them now so uh with some exceptions but like you start to see more diverse dinosaurs just because they're developing in their own little ecosystems as opposed sure. to like being able to walk all over the earth on like one big boulevard called right, Pangaea. Gotcha. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so then he, he spends another chapter about, um, about birds and how dinosaurs are birds. And when we find out that they were birds, 
um, which starts in like 1969. Nice. And then actually there was a dinosaur in 1861. That's sort of a bird also, but it's really the 1960s where it kicks off. Um, I feel like it's only relatively recently that um, like the popular depictions of dinosaurs started to push yes. back against the the lizard look. Yes, and that's... And to start to add feathers to things. So, like, I think... And I don't know... He doesn't address this in the book. I imagine there's some lag time. Jurassic Park comes in after the dinosaurs and birds are super related and dinosaurs behaved like birds stuff was really taking hold. Um, right, but we hadn't yet updated our visual vocabulary correct. for dinosaurs and, to, to accommodate that. Yeah, and, and he cites a lot of Chinese paleontologists who have discovered specimens with, like, filaments and, and, and uh, other, like, tendons and things that actually describe wings. Um, and he spends a lot of time talking about, like, early dinosaur feathers were probably not for flying, that's probably a thing that happened later after they've had feathers for a good long time. Just for looks. It was for looks. It might have been for warmth. It might have been for... Some of them might have been similar to, like, porcupine quills in terms of, like, defense. All, all sorts of stuff that we just don't know unless we have them. But we're finding more specimens where the the fluff is actually fossilized as well. Sure. Uh, and that's just a, a more recent development. Uh, and then the latter part of the book is about the dinosaurs dying. He gives a really in-depth description of what happened when an asteroid hit the Earth. And it sucks. Like, he's like, oh, man, a bunch of dinosaurs were probably hanging out. And then they saw a big light in the sky, but they were too dumb to really think about it. And then all of a sudden, that light made a bunch of noise. And then it crashed into the Earth. And, like... If you were in North America at the time, you would have been thrown up from the ground like several stories and then crashed down to Earth. And that probably just killed a bunch of dinosaurs right then. Right. And then all the rocks that got sent up into the sky became acid rain. And that killed the ones who didn't die first. And then all the skies just lit on fire and all the forests lit on fire. And then that that all took about two hours, he says. And then... uh. Then all the the sonic booms would happen because sound follows behind uh, light. So then all the sonic booms from the meteor or the comet would come in and burst all the dinosaurs' eardrums if they weren't already dead. And then they'd be disoriented. And then all the tsunamis would come from the storms. And so it sucked. It was bad. It was really awful. I guess, yeah, I guess I had in my head... A, a version of this that, that was still pretty awful, but was more about like dust getting kicked up and, and kind of like the, the sun getting blocked out and like a lot of vegetation dying out. Like, I think this is the Fantasia version of how dinosaurs die actually is like the, the meteor hits and vegetation dies out. And then with that link in the food chain removed, everything goes downhill yeah, from there. So this is now this sounds way <laughs> like this is the dark, gritty reboot of how the dinosaurs now, died. He, he is going deep on how dinosaurs in like North America, Western Hemisphere bit it. Like so what this probably also caused was a rash of volcanoes on in like India or what is now India and that part of the world because the dinosaurs on the other side of the planet obviously did not get this like immediate wild earthquake scenario but they were the ones who were like oh no all of the earth's blood is on its surface now and we're burning to death and 
Oh no! Don't, please don't talk about <laughs> lava like it's the Earth's blood. I don't like it. <laughs> and now, oh yes, all the dust and the acid is in the sky, and you know all of the plants are starting to die, and we're starting to choke. And so, like that happens after the first day, and becomes like a hundred to a few thousand years. And he does dive into the like controversy that this uh, controversy. Eh. There was a period of time where this was not like the settled story um, there up until a paper was published in the 1980s by Luis and Walter Alvarez and Frank Acero and Helen Michelle. Um, yes, we knew that an asteroid probably happened, but there was just as many, like all the dinosaurs got colds or like something happened to the plants or like maybe a, a meteor did it, but they were probably dying anyway. And it's, su- <laughs> it's supported in the fossil record that like in a very short amount of time, a bunch, everything died. Um, and in that same area, there's a bunch of iridium in the soil, which is mostly a, f- a thing that comes from space rocks. It's not a very common mineral mineral in the ground. And you can like look at a band in various parts of the Earth in the, in the fossil record and be like, yeah, this is when the comet happened. Um, and then they found the crater on the Yucatan in the 90s. Uh, I mean, so this obviously is why we have teams of uh like oil drillers who are ready to go up into space yeah (laughs) anytime we need them to break up a big asteroid that's true we need them because otherwise this would happen to us i don't want to miss a thing andrew they need to go up there i want the asteroid to miss the earth as well (laughs) i want i want it to miss a thing it's true it's true um and so he he then kind of the, his closing thoughts are a little bit about, you know, some of this about the debate over the asteroid, which has mostly been settled, um, the moving into the debate about birds. He talks a little bit about, like, how flight would have incentivized creatures to get smaller because once you once you can fly, you're going to be better at it if you're lighter and smaller and more nimble. So right. the dinosaurs that survived, and this is a known unknown, is that, like, well, birds were left and, like, the dinosaurs that were around all ate it. Um, and it also probably is like birds were probably starting to evolve to be, to get a lot of their nutrients from seeds, which are very like efficient forms of nu- nutrition from nature because they last a long time. Most of them are underground, so they're not going to get the radioactive acid rain, things sure. like that. He mm-hmm. does mention that like it, it's possible that just the asteroid came at a really bad time. <laughs> And that there were like, is there a good time? Well, he does. He does. He's like, I don't know if there'd be a good time. He does say that like there were. They've looked and done some some research on maybe that like the the diversity of herbivores at that time was at a low. It was at a lull in dinosaur history. So that if a couple of them died or that the plants didn't make it, that they were not going to recover. Um, but he still is, he's like, I would bet my entire career and life on the fact that if no dinosaur, if no asteroid, the dinosaurs are still here like that. He's just like that, you know, um, no extinction without an asteroid is what he says. Huh? Well, okay. So, and that's like, that's mostly the book. Cause then he, then he just kind of does a, a less, he spends a little time at the end being like, one of the f- reasons I'm, ex- I'm interested in both the Permian to dinosaur transition and the exit of the dinosaurs entirely is like, it is worth knowing about the precarity of existence on the planet earth because it does, 
it does drive a lot of behavior and is going to continually drive more behavior in the coming years here for us. Um, so it is worth knowing this kind of stuff. But that's kind of how he closed. What were you going to say? Sorry, you had a thought. No, I was just, I was just gonna. So you've you've given a couple examples of writing from the book that you enjoyed, and it does sound like for this apocalypse chapter that he draws, he paints quite a picture. But like, how much of your enthusiasm for this book is the subject matter, and how much is the way it is written? And I guess we can. Yeah, we can close on that. that. Um, I found it a very compelling, like, page turner, mostly because the anecdote, the Da Vinci Code. I want (laughs) really right. Um, he he has come up with compelling arguments for each chapter in terms of like, here's why I want to talk about this thing because it proves this point or it raises this question about like why we know this and not that. Um, so the, the chapters have a pretty sound logic to them. I found, I think the, the like page to page stuff, it does swap between modes. And I think if it was at its, at its weakest, it's the anecdotes because I can tell that I don't need to remember all of this history of paleontology to remember what I want to know from this book. Like I'm going to, look back on like this book is going to be on my shelf and I'm be like oh yeah remember when he told me about how cool t-rexes were and i'm going to be thinking about the pembrian the the permian age stuff that i didn't know excuse me um i'm not going to be thinking about the other paleontologists that he had beers with and thinks have a surprising sense of humor or this interesting guy from Poland who picked him up at an airport once. Like that stuff is it's <laughs> compared to what he is putting forward it is forgettable even though in the moment it like it's an it's a means to an argumentative end because he's trying to show you how this information comes about at a very human scale. So like I didn't mind it in the moment, but I can even look back on my reading and be like, yeah, I don't really remember all of those stories. And Yeah, I mean, to be fair, it does have to compete with the just absolutely horrific description that you just gave me of how dinosaurs <laughs> die. Pretty bizarre. Like compared and awful. to that, picking a scientist up at the airport is not gonna chart on my list of things I remember about this. Well, book. and I will say it was pretty like kudos to him for choosing to roll out his most effective writing until the end to be like, let me save all of my narrative power for the extinction of the dinosaurs. There's like one or two earlier, like let me tell you a story about some Edmontosaurs that got eaten by a pack of T-Rexes. And it's like told like a, like a little like narration and that's like fun and fine. Um, But this is like Edmontosaur, the one who walls that guy up in the, in the uh, catacombs about the Amontillado. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. That's definitely him. I'm so, that was really worth interrupting. <laughs> for. No, I was out of stuff. Um, I'm glad that you did that. <laughs> uh, but yeah, and, and he, I, I also, I really appreciated the drier sections, I think, because I, that's the stuff I don't know. Like he did, he does a pretty good job of succinctly describing like, how you would draw conclusions from 
oh, I have this box of dinosaur fossils, box being a, a nondescript size, but just I have a, a collection of dinosaur fossils. I'm going to like go through them categorically and I'm going to compare small details between species and that will allow me to draw a conclusion about species diversity in this era and what that might have meant for who was coming and going. Um and that is stuff that I have not encountered in other texts before and was tied to his personal experience, so made it a little bit more digestible than it might have been if I was reading a dinosaur textbook. Sure. Yeah, like I guess that maybe you didn't bounce off the drier parts as much because you already knew some stuff. And it's you, possible. And you wanted yeah. to know more. And so you're ready to dig another layer deeper, whereas maybe people coming to this as one of their first dinosaur texts or like knowing a little less and sure. just wanting to learn more would not uh, value the, the detours from like the basic information as much. I'm just kind of guessing. No, but. I think that's possible. I also think um, and I'll shift back to the anecdotes. I think there might be some readers who are more interested in the like uh, geopolitical, not geopolitical, but like, relations between peoples across the world as they embark on dinosaur fossil hunting and like how do you navigate that between different governments and while he doesn't get into like a lot of the like we stole these dinosaurs from Mongolia or whatever which is a thing that's happened a number of times um he does like dig into how people who are from a certain region develop a certain expertise or oh this like random worker in this one country like found a bone and then contacted the right people and there there's an element of like wow how lucky we are with that we found this information and then there's also this kind of like global spirit of cooperation that you can't express that when he's diving deep on how a t-rex works so he spends sure. time talking about a lot of the people that he's worked with and for me that was the additive effect of that so that might be a thing that would keep someone invested if they actually kind of like rolled their eyes a little bit at some of the like and here's what all the volcanoes happened and here's the time i made a spreadsheet like they might actually be more <laughs> interested in like oh wow there are like i came away going like i would actually like to know a lot more about why uh China has like a rise in paleontology in terms of new discovery and seem to be leaders in a lot of the like interesting discoveries that are being made because uh, he doesn't he doesn't dive into that because that seems to be very recent experience for him. Um, but that's a question and, and a food for thought that I came away with. So it was, okay. a, it was a really freaking fun book and I'm kind of sad that I'm not a paleontologist after reading it like that was. If that is a useful endorsement, um, and we're not usually here to be like, read this book or don't, but like, if you want to feel bad that you didn't become a thing and that thing is paleontologists, like, this is the book for you. <laughs> I mean, I think if it makes you feel any better, I am 100% sure that as soon as you realize the actual scope of the work that you would need oh, to yeah. do to do that, you would be like, yeah, I actually am fine with the choices like, that I've made. I like so being far. outside, but not that much, you know? Right. Like, not for days at a time. No. That's untenable. Of course not. No, that's not. That's why they invented inside, so I wouldn't have to do that. You know, I bet dinosaurs don't know what inside is. Think about that. They probably don't, because they're as smart as dogs or chimps. They never invented houses. <laughs> <laughs>
we invented yep. houses. Mm-hmm. All right. Anyway, uh, that's our podcast, everybody. That's it. All right. Bye. <laughs> thanks for hanging out, everybody in the chat. Uh, Andrew, thanks for letting me tell you about dinosaurs. I appreciate it. Of course. I talk about them all the time. Yeah. Um, if folks want to tell think us, about them even more. Folks want to tell us about their favorite dinosaur, hit us up on social media at Overdue Pod, Twitter and Facebook, or OverduePod at gmail.com. That's the email address that usually comes first. Andrew, if folks want to know more about the show, where should they go? Just go to OverduePodcast.com. It's our internet website. Uh, up there, we have links to Apple Podcasts, Google Play, um, our RSS feed. We are also on Spotify and Stitcher and all kinds of other places where you can find podcasts. We have a new listener page where if you're trying to introduce people to the show, those are episodes we like. And we have bookshop.org links for the books that we have read and are going to read so you can read along with us and support your local independent bookseller at the same time. Yeah. Uh, Anything else? Uh, No. By the time folks on the main feed are listening to this, uh, you should have seen our episode with Margaret H. Willison about an unseen attraction by K.J. Charles. And we will likely have put out our July schedule, which will definitely include the third Hunger Games book. That's it. That's all I got. Love these games. Love those games. I love these games. Okay, everybody. Thank you for listening. And until we talk to you next time, try to be happy. That was a HeadGum Podcast.